0: Hello! Welcome to this BMJ podcast about wellbeing. Today, we're talking about the effects of COVID on society and how we can move forward. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an
1: interest in wellbeing. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on wellbeing. And today we're going to be talking to an author and historian who specialises in the grey areas, including the intersection between medicine and the humanities. So
0: Kat, I think one of the things we're going to be talking today about is how COVID-19 has affected us as a society, kind of what judgments it's forced us to place on our neighbours and our colleagues for maybe, in inverted commas, not doing the right thing, and how it's kind of changed our attitudes towards each other.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting. I sort of had this nickname for my six year old, um, which is the profanity police, uh, because every time I say anything like, oh, sugar or blooming, you know, nothing serious. um, You know, he sort of dances around me going, oh, mommy said this, mommy said that. Um, And I feel like this has been kind of on a grand scale in COVID, suddenly everyone is judging what I'm saying or what I'm doing. And, you know, am I wearing a mask? Am I kind of seeing my family when I'm not supposed to? Am I breaking the rules? Um, and yeah, it's it's a very weird kind of experience to live through, I guess.
0: Mm, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've experienced is around wearing a mask. So a couple of weeks ago, I went on holiday to um, Sussex and and wore my mask in shops it was before the to be fair the rules said that you should Um, but I thought I was doing the right thing but really got looks from people like you know I was carrying the plague and what was I doing there which was quite a weird experience now that everyone has to wear masks but um, yeah it was quite I thought oh should I take it off am I doing the wrong thing I don't want to upset people but I thought I was helping and it was a kind of really weird balance of what the right thing to do was.
1: Yeah, and I feel for me, I can feel quite angry at other people's behaviour. So I've been in a household which has been shielding um, because I've been with my father who has, who's you know, old and has various health problems. I've been with my sister who has uh, various health problems. They're incredibly vulnerable. Uh, And I've found even on the really rare occasions when I've had to go out and say, collect a prescription, I've been so aware. I'm like, are you nearer to me than two meters? Like, are you invading my space? Are you breathing on me? I've been sort of very anxious about the feeling that I can control my own behavior, but I can't control the behavior of everyone else around me. Um, So all of these things, and how do I try and you know keep people away do I sort of look a bit cross and kind of frown at them or do I smile at them it's, it's just really tricky
0: well we're really really lucky to have someone coming on the podcast who can talk to us all about these issues and more
2: Yes, I'm so happy to join you today. So my name is Brandy Scilache, and I am a historian and author. I'm also the editor for the Medical Humanities Journal at BMJ, which is one of uh, several medical humanities journals out there. But we focus specifically on social justice and issues of accessibility. So you can imagine we've been very, very busy since all of this began. Um, the other issue is I live in the United States, which has a very different Kind of activity going on here than is happening in the UK. For one thing, we've been wearing masks a lot longer, um, and for another, it's the the United States is such a big place; it's enormous, and so things that are happening, you, you can't really generalize. So, I live in Ohio, which is just a little bit smaller, I think, in terms of surface area than Britain or than uh, than England, um, but yet there's Texas where which is much much bigger than either of us and is much further away where things are not being taken seriously and people are deciding not to shield at all. And we're seeing numbers that reflect that. So it's a peculiar place to be where I feel as though uh, I have both a local understanding of how the pandemic is working and a national understanding of how the pandemic working and a global understanding. And so these things working together gives you a a kind of unusual perspective on how things are, are happening here.
1: And I think we're experiencing that on a microcosm, even in the Mm -hmm. UK, because, you know, we've had real differences and approaches from England and Scotland and Wales, Um, with Scotland and Wales, for example, taking a lot more time to come out of lockdown and keeping their messaging a lot stricter around, you know, don't just stay alert, whatever that means in England, but um, stay home, uh, wear a mask, you know. So even on a much smaller scale, we've had a a very mixed national Mm -hmm. picture.
2: Yes. Uh, well, it, in Ohio, which has been leading the United States for at least a period of time in terms of better messaging and better control, that's where I'm from, the governor's message has been good. Amy Acton, who had been the uh, the health, sort of the, the, the person out front originally, was very good, as opposed to, say, on the national level where our president has re- requested that people maybe try injecting bleach or something. So it's uh, very, very confused here for a lot of people. And you can understand why, considering the CDC said, don't wear a mask, do wear a mask, don't wear a mask, why there's so much confusion. Um, But what I find interesting, now that we've been going through this since March, is the divisiveness, the way that the mixed messaging has basically led to everyone kind of taking sides against one another. And it's actually been driving a spike between people at a time when we really want people to care about their communities and come together for mutual support and protection.
0: It's really interesting that you say that, Brandy, because I think, as Kat and I reflected on earlier, one of the things we've been seeing in the UK is, and probably part of this is because around the mixed messaging that the public are receiving on what you can and can't do, People are kind of judging one another for doing the right thing or the wrong thing and deciding what they think the right thing is. So, Are you wearing a mask in public, for example? Are you not? And kind of almost shaming each other into kind of feeling bad about not doing the right thing. And I think when we... We invited you to come on the podcast, we knew that you sort of had an interest in the topic of shame. So I wonder if you had any reflections on how that's playing into the feeling in society at the moment. Shame.
2: We we did a special issue on shame not too long ago at Medical Humanities, and it's still available if people want to take a look at it uh, with some attended material on the blog. But shame is a terrible teaching tool, unfortunately, and it's used a lot as a teaching tool. It's used against children, it's used in peer groups, but shame is not good at teaching people anything. Uh, And unfortunately, what you what you have are situations where we as cultures, um, both in the UK and the US, we don't have a culture of communal response. So, for instance, I had a friend who lived in Japan for a while, she was teaching there. And in Japan, it's quite common for you to mask if you have a cold or if you're over a certain age. Elderly people often wear masks in public to protect themselves, whether they have immunocompromised conditions or not. And she talked about how alien it was at first that she went there and she kept thinking there must be something wrong with these people, that they're wearing masks. When in fact, it's a cultural difference. It's a cultural understanding that you don't want to burden people with your own potential uh, viruses, even if it's just a common cold, and that's a really different understanding. We just don't have that kind of understanding. The other thing that's true culturally, and so uh, I don't want to give the impression that it's that West that over here in the UK and US everyone's just terribly selfish, but it's also that we have a culture that depends a lot on facial expression and on the expression of you know, are you smiling? Are you not smiling? Are you? you know, it's it's very important, and so you can understand. There's several reasons why masking is something that feels alien to us here. Uh, So we're cultures that are not prepared to do that. Then we have mixed messaging about whether or not you should, which ultimately leads people to feel as though either option might be viable. But then they dig in once they pick one, you know. So then you get shame for wearing a mask when no one else is. Now you get shame for not wearing a mask when everyone else is or not wearing them at the right time or the right way or the right kind of mask. And the shame aspect is where the the peer group is basically trying to make you feel like you're the enemy. You're doing something bad to hurt other people. And that is Unfortunately, it, it rarely works, right? If you've learned something through shame, it's a little bit like teaching your pet not to do something by beating it. it. It, it, You don't feel good about the right activity. You don't feel good about wearing a mask if you're only wearing it because people made you feel like a monster. So shame doesn't really work. And unfortunately, I think it gets used without us almost um, unconsciously. I don't think that we intend to shame people, but I certainly know how I have felt you know, in line at the grocery store when somebody's not wearing a mask, and you immediately just want to be like, "Don't you care about your fellow man?" And that doesn't help, you know. So um, I suggest that that love and communal support. Uh, and I know love sounds like a very fluffy word, but telling people, you know, you wearing a mask makes me feel good. You wearing a mask helps me. You coming to the emergency emergency care with a mask on makes me as the doctor feel better about my odds, you know, is, is important because you're, then you're basically putting it's the carrot and not the stick. You're giving people a sense that they're doing something that makes other people feel good. And that makes, that should in general, make them feel more inclined to do it.
1: Mm. It's interesting that, You know, when you say that we unconsciously shame people, I was reflecting on how you said shame isn't a good teaching tool. Yet I think often as clinicians, when we're kind of trying to motivate people to change, particularly behaviours that we perceive to be unhealthy, um, I'm thinking especially of smoking, Mm. you know, there is a lot of like, well, you know, it, it... you know you can't smoke because of your unborn child you know with sort of shaming that kind of behaviour or you can't smoke because you know your effects on everyone around you or you know think of the horrible things it's doing rather than the kind of positive kind of loving messaging Um, and I wonder if we're sort of falling into those same patterns when Mm -hmm. as clinicians we're trying to encourage patients to to take behaviours whether it be hand washing or mask wearing or social distancing you know how do we kind of change that dialogue to to, to make it more, more productive, I guess, and more loving.
2: If, if I could um, go back to your comments about shaming people who smoke, I, I think that there's a, another, another vantage point we can look at here. And that is, um, think about the kinds of shame we put people through for being overweight. Right. And it turns into a kind of blaming of the patient, right? It's your fault that you have diabetes. Look at how you're putting pressure on the health system because you wouldn't lose weight. I mean, and and of course, that is completely uh, obnoxious behavior. We would never want anyone to shame someone for their body image. We talk all endlessly about how bad that is for our mental health. And yet it, it does occur. Um, it's, I'm in the United States where we don't have a national health service for some reason. Uh, and we, <laughs> sorry, it's very clear how I feel about that. Um, but it, you, and it's it's really obnoxious the way it has gotten into the culture so that it's a we're very very body centric here in the sense that you have this constant pressure about what your body should look like and sometimes you have no control about what your body looks like or does right so for instance uh, chronic illnesses uh, disabilities problems with mobility or difficulty breathing because you have respiratory issues, etc. These are things that we can't control. And yet, often in the United States, a stigma goes against these conditions. So uh, you have to use a respirator. There's a stigma. You're walking around with a respirator for probably completely valid reasons that have nothing to do with anything you've ever done to yourself. And yet people look at you as like, I bet they smoked. So you can see how this becomes a kind of stigma that I think... With with the new rules around pandemic, it's making some of those things which only people with disabilities or different abilities and accessibilities saw, now it's becoming something that's much more widespread. And all of us are beginning to see a bit of what that's like.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So I mentioned my sister earlier, um, and she has um, very severe allergies. And she recently, a few years ago, decided she absolutely could not get on a plane unless she had a kind of proper sort of respirator mask because it was such an unsafe situation before. She has had to divert a plane Um to an emergency landing on one occasion which I think she found quite stressful uh, not least the crew anyway um, you know and she said she feels incredibly uncomfortable when she gets on a plane and she you know is wearing this mask and everyone is staring at her and wondering what's going on what's wrong with that person you know why is she travelling why you know it's all of those questions um, and I hadn't really thought until now that this is just a kind of snapshot of people with health conditions and what they experience all the time and now you know I'm experiencing just a tiny. Fraction of that um, and finding it challenging.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's not a
1: question, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, how then might that, do you think,
0: affect the way that, for example, doctors interact with their patients? Could this perhaps give them a better understanding of how people who do have to sort of be different all the time feel?
2: I think so. I think I would. So, for one thing, I always think it's good anytime we can improve doctor and patient relationships. But I also think, um, in a way, this gets us beyond the, the doctor's office. It gets us beyond the hospital. I was speaking we have a podcast, as a part of medical humanities, and I was interviewing Alice Wong, who is a disability activist, and she she has to wear a respirator, ventilator, it covers her nose and mouth at all times. Right? It's not a mask, but it, it essentially is. It's a it's a breathing apparatus, anywhere she goes. And that includes when she's out trying to function as a disability activist, etc. And I know that she wouldn't want to be referred specifically or strictly as a patient um, because there's always a kind of balance of power when we're talking about doctors versus patients. So I think getting back to that sense that you had, Kat, about we're all realizing we're having a snapshot of what that life is like all the time gets us not just for doctors to kind of understand better their patients, but for all of us to sort of look around and realize as a public as a general public as a community we are all only at this you know delicate precipice of becoming patients ourselves so it's a useful reminder that we have the privilege of being healthy and if and and we shouldn't take that for granted because that is not necessarily uh, the the standard <laughs> health is not we i think we have a, we have an idea among medical practitioners that there's a healthy standard out there, but in fact um that 's never anything that's that's consistent or maintainable because we all age and we change and our bodies change and if you win the lottery of health and manage to stay healthy your entire life that 's actually anomalous not uh, it's not the the average it 's not the normal so I think that Seeing these snapshots through the pandemic, seeing through the lens of people who have been stigmatized for mask wearing, for having uh, disabilities of various sorts, should give doctors, but also all of us a chance to see among our community members, fellow human beings, people who are living lives that we might have to live ourselves at some point and dealing with things often with better grace than we are, um, that that now suddenly we could learn from that, we could learn from them. And so to sort of bring it back around to my original idea that shame is not a good teaching tool, community mindedness is not driven by shame. It's driven by connection and companionability and a seeing in others part of yourself. And so possibly this gives us as uh, health practitioners, as and I, of course, I'm not a health practitioner, but I am somebody who works in uh, the humanities and health, gives us all a chance to look out at our fellow human beings and see brothers and sisters instead of somebody who might mm. not be following the rules the way we want them to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think when you are sort of fit and healthy and you look at someone who obviously has some kind of health condition it's easy to see them as very other and to feel that you know you look after yourself you don't you know you don't you're not at risk of being that person and then I think suddenly now you've said in the global pandemic we're all at risk you know we're suddenly all aware of the kind of precariousness of our of our health um, no matter what age or stage we're at so I think as you said perhaps kind of that sense of otherness may start to dissolve and we can start to feel that actually, you know, we're all in the same situation. We're all kind of going through this together. So perhaps we will get that sense of community mindedness. How is it in the US? Do you feel that sense of community is coming out?
2: <laughs> you know, in the, the United States is such is in a really strange place right now. Um, we're experiencing upheavals that we're not used to seeing. But I heard someone say, oh, these, uh, these protests against health, against social injustice, I wish we could get back to normal. And I looked at them and I said, the world has been this way for minorities since the beginning. The founding of our country was founded on the backs of slavery, for instance. And so th- the fact that it seems intrusive, the, the, not just the the pandemic, but also the the protests for Black Lives Matter, it said the fact that it seems or feels intrusive to us just as a demonstration of, of our privilege. And so I think one of the things that you're seeing, and I'll use Portland as an example, um, there's a joke that says there's more Black Lives Matter posters in Portland than there are black people in Portland. And it's kind of true. But what it means is that f- for once, finally, you have people who have privilege looking around and going, oh, I have privilege? You mean you don't have this? And it's causing, for the first time, I think, people to look around and go, this is a mess. It should not be this way. We can't go back to normal because normal wasn't any good. And uh, I'm also a death studies um, person, and I've been interviewed a lot during this because of the way people are grieving differently and can't get to funerals. And someone asked me about, you know, what's going to happen to us with all of this collective grief? And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, one of the things that we're all grieving at the same time is the loss of an illusion of self-control the loss of an illusion that we are in control of our destinies and that, you know, if I go to the grocery store, I'm going to shop and get food and come home. I'm not going to be suspected of shoplifting and harassed by police officers. And I'm just not going to assume that's going to happen because I'm white. And all of a sudden you're realizing that assumption isn't one that everyone can make. So we are suddenly grieving the loss of something that is kind of, um, it is basically an illusion to begin with. We don't have control over our destinies. What we do have is a community that is that deserves to be protected. And we're not all safe until we're all safe. So we don't really have freedom until we all have freedom is that concept. And I think that's starting to happen. So while the news out there probably looks like everything's on fire in the United States. And it's certainly at least partly true. Uh, what The reason that everything seems to be on fire is because people are waking up and going, you know what, it's been burning for a long time. Maybe we ought to do something about it. And that to me says we're waking up to a sense of community.
0: This might be a slightly tangential thought. So forgive me both if it is. But what you said there, Brandy, made me think that Actually, and it may have been something that was happening before the pandemic, but I feel like in the last few weeks at least, there have been more discussions that I've seen in the UK around um, the differences in health outcomes for people of different ethnicities in the UK Mm. and also discussions around how we treat our medical colleagues who aren't white in different situations. And I don't know if any of that is... Related to the fact that in the UK, we've seen a higher proportion of black and ethnic minority doctors lose their lives to COVID than we have of white doctors and healthcare professionals across the board, or whether it's related to something else. But I do feel like there has been this sort of slight sea change undercurrent in recognising that actually, although we have the NHS, which we're very proud of, and one of those, you mm. know, founding sentiments of the NHS is that this should be free healthcare for everyone. Actually, not everyone is getting that same level of care. And I maybe it's hopeful to think that that's something good that's come out of this pandemic. It might be unrelated, but that's a feeling that I've been getting. So it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to hear you talk about kind of the Black Lives Matter and how it might be making people in the US reflect on their own privilege.
2: I actually see the Black Lives Matter and the protests surrounding the COVID and etc. They're all related because, of course, uh, COVID is disproportionately affecting black people, minorities of various kinds, fiscal minorities as well, disabled people, um, it's, it's disproportionately affecting them. And I will also say that the health outcomes in the United States, I know this particularly for maternal health, because I did work in that area uh, at the medical museum. But here in the, uh, just in Cleveland alone, the infant and maternal mortality rates are enormously skewed towards black women. And I, I actually did a, a symposium where I invited several leaders of groups that are uh, black-led uh, doctors and nurses investigating this, and I asked them to give, me, give a presentation that was for the public to tell us what is causing this, you know, um, why are these deaths so high? And the answer surprised me, and the answer was not related to how much money they made, it was not related to where they lived. I, I assumed that being minorities, we were going to see this skew along uh, poverty lines. It was not. The mortality rates, infant and maternal mater- mortality rates were just as high among well-to-do, professional black people that as it was anyone else. So the answer was racism. Racism was the reason. They live lives under constant stress. Their cortisol levels are through the roof all the time because they live in a society which constantly puts pressure on them as minorities. And so... When you realize that even when the medical systems are trying their best, you have pressures, systemic racist pressures on minorities that are going to cause negative health outcomes in the best of times, much less when the systems themselves are not working towards the benefit and the good.
1: Mm. So the question that this throws up for me um, is if we are you know if we want to foster these communities which are safe kind of in terms of protecting people's health and have freedoms in terms of you know generating freedoms for everybody how do we create this kind of societal change like you know we've seen that shame isn't an effective way of kind of changing behavior and beliefs. so how do we you know How do we do that kind of community transformation work? I know that's an enormous question.
2: (laughs) If only I had the answer to it. Yeah, (laughs) that would be really great. Um, I think the point is the question. I think the point is that we're asking these questions. There aren't there isn't an answer because I don't think there's a singular way of doing this. And, And this goes back even to the original question about how do people know what's right to do during the pandemic? All of this has to be negotiated, uh, mitigated, investigated on individual levels within the different communities and the context in which they happen. So I think one of the problems in answering that question is the problem is very, very large and it's underneath everything. It sort of undergirds things. And the way forward is not from the top down. It has to be, uh, it cannot be that um, medicine from the hospital looks down and tries to fix the public it can 't be that academia from the tower looks down and tries to fix the public. This has to be something we do in our individual lives from the ground up, and we want that to affect policy too, but because the problem is racism it, it can't it isn 't just a policy issue you know passing lots of laws won 't stop racism; it has to be an individual thing and so um, and I know we're not specifically talking about racism, but that is involved in the way in, in all of these these concerns. I think that the way forward is is going to be individual community. And it, it means we have to care about our neighbors, even the ones we might not like. Um, we have to care about them. We have to see them as human beings. And I don't know how you teach that, but I think recognising fellow feeling, recognising that we are in the same boat is at least a step in the right direction.
0: Well, that was really interesting. I thought Brandy had so many different and interesting points to make one of the things I don't know why that popped into my head when she was talking she said something about going to the grocery store and looking at different people in the in the line um and it made me think about the social behaviors we have in the UK and queuing and how you know everyone knows how to behave a certain way in a queue no one ever really teaches you but it's kind of part of I guess the culture here and I wondered how long it would take for you know, mask wearing to become similarly part of our culture or behaving better to people who look different to you, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, she made me think about loads of different things.
1: Yeah, it was really thought provoking. And i I didn't expect us to go from kind of you know a sense of slight shame around wearing a mask to kind of how do you fix kind of systemic racism (laughs) so I think it's certainly a really broad ranging discussion um but I agree it's interesting to think about these kind of societal norms and where they come from and and how quickly they can change I guess I mean even going back to kind of smoking as an example like you know with the smoking ban suddenly you know smoking inside just completely stopped and and everyone's outside and now there's vaping like that's hugely changed over the last kind of 10-15 years um, and I'm sure we'll see kind of some really ac- accelerated societal change um, as a result of COVID. We, we already have seen it um, and hopefully some of those behaviours are going to be really positive positive. Um, and we know that you know we know that um, the incidence of kind of gastrointestinal um, infections is down because everyone's much better at hand washing you know we we know that the experience of australia is that they're not seeing the same seasonal flu peak so you know some of these behaviors are really positive for us healthily as a society and hopefully we'll we'll embed them quite soon yeah
0: absolutely
1: Anyway, <laughs> let's wrap this up for now. Thank you so much to Brandi Shalache for coming on the podcast. You can reach her at B Shalache on Twitter. And you can check us out on social media. We're at j
0: underscore latest on Twitter. Or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. And please let us know your ideas for what we could cover in the future. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye. Bye.